Keats, the famous poet, said, A thing of beauty is a joy forever. It will never pass into nothingness. The philosopher Roger Scruton opines, Beauty demands to be noticed. It speaks to us directly like the voice of an intimate friend. Beauty never leaves us the same. It calls to us. It changes us. And there is no grander beauty, friends, than our subject this morning, the magnificent love of God, which we've been thinking about already in the Scripture and the Psalms. It is more lovely than that piece of music, than that well-set table, than that dress. It's more splendid than the mountainscape or the oceanside villa, more costly than the, the Hope Diamond or a painting by Van Gogh. It's more mysterious than the Mona Lisa, the ocean floor, or a deep underwater dive. Nothing is more beautiful, more costly, more transforming than the love of God. Would you please locate 1 John 4 this morning? It's in the second half of the Christian Bible. Uh, page 1023. If you need a Bible, and that's there in front of you. Second half of the Christian Bible, 1 John. John was a dear friend of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And now is an aging pastor who's seen much wrong and endured so much suffering... He encourages congregations, gatherings like this one this morning to behold the love of God. John knows that it's in beholding that we become. That the more you look at something beautiful, the more that you take it in, or maybe better, the more it takes you in. And then you're changed. So John writes of the love of God. He, he paints his strokes in broad, bold colors for our holiness, for our joy, and for our assurance. That His love purifies us. His love gives us joy and His love gives us assurance. And if there is, we'll see in a moment, if there's no desire for holiness, if there's no change in your life, then you've never really seen His beauty. Because if you're not changed, you're not beholding. You've never seen Jesus for who He is. And that is why John writes. At the beginning of chapter 4, John exhorts to discernment regarding who the real Jesus is. And now he exhorts us to love one another because God is love. And this section is meant, like every section in John's letter, first letter here, to either expose our hearts as frauds or give us assurance. If we love, we are God's children. If we don't love, we are not God's children. So would you read with me now 1 John 4... Verses 7 to 12. This is what Holy Scripture says. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. 
This is the word of the Lord. Let's discover the theme in this portrait of love before we look at it in detail. It's really easy, but keep your Bible open. Did you notice that this little section, verses 4 to 11, we'll look at this morning, essentially begins and ends in the same way? So notice again the beginning of verse 8. Beloved, let us love one another. Now look at verse 11. Beloved, if God loved us in this way, we also must love one another. So how does this section then begin and end? What kind of sentence, we could ask? What kind of sentence is verse 8 and verse 11? Well, it's a command. So the section begins and ends with a command for us to love fellow believers. But now notice what's sandwiched in between this. What's, what's in between this layer of love one another? That's verses 9 and 10. And they both begin the same way. In this is God's love revealed. In this is love. So as you're reading your Bible, then you'd want to ask, well, how then does this relate? How does this inner layer relate to this outer layer that He sandwiched this this thinking in? Well, here's the answer. That God's love and those verses in the middle, God's love in the middle is the enabling of our ability to love one another. So, what is the theme of this portrait of verses? Here it is. God's great love for us enables our love for one another. That's what John is laying out for us to think about this morning. And that's a recurring theme again and again as John writes, that God's great love for us enables our ability to love one another. And moreover, that John shows us that our love for one another is proof, is reassuring proof, that we have experienced God's love. So that's the overall idea. Now let's look at this in a little more detail. Here's the the, the headings that we'll use. The command to love and what's revealed. Verses 7 and 8. God's love for us and how it's revealed. 9 and 10. And then our love for one another and what it completes. Verses 11 and 12. So first, verses 7 and 8. The command to love and what it reveals. Now, even before we we look at this command in particular, I just want to think of several implications of this. The fact that John commands love has a number of implications for us. Let me just give you five of them quickly. The fact that the command to love is repeated so often in 1 John and in the Christian New Testament not only shows us how important it is, but it shows us how hard it is. We're repeatedly commanded to love one another because it's hard. So God's commands, it's a voice to us. They shout to us like a fitness instructor to do it again and again and again, to keep at it. This is for your good. And moreover, this repeated command in John and the New Testament is repeated so often because, friends, doesn't it show how forgetful we are? That what ought to characterize our interactions is is love for one another. That's what we're to be known for. Now this doesn't mean mean that congregations and Christians always agree on everything, but it does mean that when they don't agree, they disagree in love, assuming what's best and praying what's best. So this command reveals that it's hard. It reveals that we're forgetful, so it's repeated again and again. And the command also shows us that this is a good command. 
God only commands us what's best for us, what will lead to our flourishing. So though the command may be hard, though we may forget it, it's a good command from our Father who desires our best. And if this is a command that is good, then this is a command by God's grace and the power of the Spirit that can be obeyed. It is true. It is true that God gives this command to show us our sin and inability at one level. After all, who can truly love as Christ has loved us? Which of us can keep the second great commandment to love our neighbor as ourselves? Friends, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, this is what's wrong with the world. We can't keep this one command before God to love our neighbors as ourselves. So that means this one command puts everybody under the same condemnation because we're all guilty of breaking it. But once we experience God's transforming love in Jesus Christ who died for our lack of love for our neighbors and rose again so that we could be forgiven. Once we experience that transforming love and we place all our hope in Him for a cleansed conscience and sins forgiven, then His commandments guide our way. Once these commandments condemned us, but now they instruct us to grow in grace. And having come to experience the deep love of Jesus, John can even write a few chapters later that now these commands are no longer a burden to us. When you truly love someone, doing what they desire is not a burden. So this is a good command. And it's a command that we can actually obey. You know, it's not usually wise parenting to set your children up for, repeatedly, for a failure by repeatedly asking them to do something that's too hard for them. That's a way to provoke them to anger which is clearly forbidden in Ephesians 6. Now granted, it's probably a good thing to let more of our children fail. It's good for them and you, but that's another talk. But, but however, provoking our children to wrath by insufferable or unreasonable demands is not good parenting. So what does this mean about God? Well, God is the best, the most loving Father. So when He commands us to love, He's not setting us up for failure. He knows that though this command is hard, that by the power of the Spirit, this great command is one we can actually obey and it will result in good things for a number of His people. What a good, loving Father we have. You could add a, a fifth implication. That the command to love shows us the nature of real love. If love can be commanded, it can never be reduced finally or ultimately to a feeling or an emotion that you fall in and out of. Sometimes people who are not Christians love to point out how enslaving God's requirements are. But friend, if you're not a Christian, or maybe you're a Christian struggling with certain doubts, have, have, you, thought, have you thought that we're all servants to something and you can be a slave to your feelings, and that might be the worst kind of slavery. If you follow the advice of every Disney movie or pop song, you know, to just cut to the feeling, you'll probably remain emotionally underdeveloped and professionally limited. 
Just stop for a moment and question the assumption. Have you stopped to think that rather freeing you, your feelings, your pursuit of a certain kind of happiness might actually be enslaving you? The point is that we need something to guide us, to mature us, to navigate by. God's commands are an anchor. They're a north star so that we can navigate life and become fully human and mature so that we love. So this is the command to love. It reveals that loving one another is hard, that we're forgetful to love one another, but it's for our good. We can obey this, and this command to love shows us the nature of real love. But now notice what John says next. He tells us something that this love reveals. First, it reveals something about the nature of God, and it reveals something about the nature of us. We'll think about the nature of God in a moment. But now let's notice what what this command to love reveals about us. Look again at the end of verse 7. Whoever loves has been born of God. Our love for one another is proof that God is our Father. Can I put it like this? By figure of speech, love is in the genetic code of God. Just like our genetic code shows up in our children, God's nature must show up in His children. So the fact that that one keeps this commandment to love then shows that God's seed is in us. That His nature is in us. Think of it this way. It's impossible for children not to look like their parents. It's impossible for God's true children not to look like Him. So our love for one another shows then that we have been born of God. So, this is the small encouraging point, John says. If you love other Christians, if you wish you loved them more, if, you rep- if there's a sense of repentance that you don't love them better, if that's in your heart, friend, beloved, then this morning you have assurance that you are God's child. And don't doubt it. So this command then is actually a means to give us assurance. However, if keeping this command to love other believers reveals that God's nature in us and that we are God's children, what does it reveal if we are not consistently keeping this command or have no desire to do so? Well, now look at the beginning of verse 8. John makes it clear. The one who does not love does not know God. If we don't love other Christians, if we're more comfortable with viewpoints of the world than those of Christians, if we're not making ourselves known and identified to a local congregation, then we don't know God. Listen, it's impossible for fish not to love water. It's in their nature. They don't even have a choice. Similarly, it's impossible for true children of God who have God's seed in them not to love other Christians. It's in their nature. This is not simply talking about, of course, church attendance or liking other Christians or getting around them because they're nicer and they're kinder and they tend to you know, overlook certain things. No, 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 no. This is a choice arising from the nature to love other Christians and be accountable to them. There is no real knowledge of God 
that's not expressed in love for other Christians. You can't say, I love God. I have a deep relationship with Him. It's me, God, Jesus, in my Bible, in my earbuds, and you don't love His people. You can't say you know God if you don't love His people. That's impossible. So this command, John would say, so what does this command reveal about you this morning? Is this command giving you assurance? Or is it exposing your profession as a fraud? Because God's true children love other Christians and desire to identify with them above everyone else. Does that describe you? This is what the command to love reveals. Now let's look at the second thing John turns to. That is that God's love for us and how it's revealed, verses 9 and 10. This is the fuel to this command. At the end of verse 8, John reveals something fundamental about God's character. There are two God is statements in John. God is light, and now the verse 8 gives us another one. God is love. Now in context, beloved, uh, John is stating once again the impossibility of claiming to love God, but not love His people. You can't say you love God and not love His people. Why? Because God is love. That is once more, His nature dwells in you, so you will love. Why? Because God is in you. And if God is love, and His nature is in you, then you will love. So you cannot say, I love Jesus, but I don't love the church. That's a terrible slander against the Christ you claim to believe in. And his love for his own people. But as soon as John shows us the nature of God as a reason we must love, love because God is love, now he stops to explain what he means that God is love. Because that's a popular uh, cultural slogan too, or a belief. God is love. Well here, and at the verses 8 to 10, are some of the most beautiful realities in all of Christian scripture. Up to this point, it's like we've been taking a tour through a grand castle with its sprawling gardens and sculptures and every turn and every new room opens up to us a new delight. But when we come to these verses, it's as if the palace doors are flung open and now we come face to face with the beauty behind all other beauty. We come face to face with Him whose name is love, the Lord of all this revelry. What does it mean that God is love? Well, to begin, it does not, you can't reverse the statement. Friends, it is true that God is love, but it is not true that love is God. There are many applications of that, but here's one. It is not true that wherever there is love, there is God. That wherever there is love, God smiles approvingly. This comes out in popular, you know, bumper sticker sloganeering. Love is love is love. And as long as there's love, that's all that matters. That's become a cultural assumption. But how do you stop to think, is that really true? Is everything worthy of the same love? Should your love for your fish be as the same quality as a love for your mother? Moreover, are certain kinds of love out of bounds? Like being over-friendly with someone who's not your spouse. 
or working so hard that you put relationships and family in jeopardy. We could press the question with countless examples, but but then maybe we should just say such things are okay because after all, love is love is love, and, and as long as there's love, God is happy, and who are we to really say? But once we admit that maybe there are differences between the quality of love, that maybe in some cases that kind of love might not be okay, then love is not love, is not love. And moreover, if you come to that point, on what basis do you determine whether I can overwork and hurt my family or not? One of the ways people appeal today is by history and culture, but aren't we always on the wrong side of history? What was Chesterton's phrase, the democracy of the dead? Don't they have a voice too in this kind of discussion? Or are we so blind to think that we and our culture is the only one that's gotten it right. That is personal and cultural arrogance. So what then is the basis of love? It's not love itself. Here it is. God is love. God Himself shows us what love is because He's love. He defines it. He exemplifies it. It's who He is. And moreover, here's the beautiful thing. Earlier in chapter 1, John says that God is light and there's no darkness in Him at all. That means that God's love has a moral quality and boundaries to it. That God is love, but He's also light too. Do you see this? That God Himself is a standard of love. And because He's light, that in His love there's discernment. There's morality. There's beauty. There's truth. That means that God is the purest, the highest, the best, the richest form of love because He is love. Now, if God does not exist, if He is not love, why should any of us love? If God doesn't exist, why should we love? Can you honestly look at the process of evolution, nature, red and tooth and claw, and find reasons to love? Why should any of us sacrifice if God doesn't exist? Without God, the command to love makes no sense. And I don't have to do that. But this statement not only tells us that God is love and not love is God, it also tells us about God's nature. This little verse, God is love, is a window that if you press up against it and look through it, you will see through this window the fellowship and love of the Trinity. Since love requires an object, whom did God love before the world? And the answer is that God has always existed in a community of love of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This is not three gods. This is one God eternally existing in three persons. And of course, we'll never be able to wrap our minds around this, but why should it be strange that there would be mysterious aspects of wonder about God's character? The Bible reveals that God has never been lonely. He's always existed within an active, mutual community of love and delight. And love flows from the Father to the Son, the Son to the Father, and the Holy Spirit loves the Son. And round and round this exchange of love has always been among the Godhead. 
So to say God is love is to have a window into the beautiful Trinitarian nature of God. So this command is based on God's Trinitarian love. That's where verses 9 and 10 come in. Because now John tells us that God is love. Now verses 9 and 10, he shows us that God is love. How do I know that God is love? What is God's love like? Verses 9 and 10 explain God's love to us. God's invisible Trinitarian love is about to be made visible for us. So look at verse 9. How is the love of God revealed, manifested? God's love was made manifest among us. That God sent His only Son, His one and only Son, into the world so that we might live through Him. Then He shows us in verse 10 the unrestrained love of God. In verse 10, this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. These verses show us three things about God's love. The source of His love, the magnitude of His love, and the purpose of His love. What is the source of God's love? Well, we might think if we didn't know better, that maybe God loves like we do. We love people who have something in common with us. Something that attracts us to them, or they have something for us. But John makes it clear at the beginning of verse 10 that this is not the case at all. This is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us. That is, God's love is not a response to something in us. Because there's nothing good in us. No one. It's not even a response ultimately to our seeking after God. For no one left to himself seeks after God. Nor is it that when you come to the Christian Bible that that God is like some kind of talent scout who saw something in you that nobody else saw. No, God loves us apart from our works. In spite of our works. That is the love of God. Because we are all glory thieves, taking what is His and claiming it to be our own. God loves us because He chose to love us. And you realize how stabling and stabilizing and assuring that is if you are God's child, that God chose to love me before the foundation of the world. And then if His choice of love for me did not lie in any reason in me, then there's nothing in me that will cause Him to turn His love away from me. How reassuring this is. Earthly fathers may leave or disappoint us. But God is the Father who's always wanted you as His child. God is the source of love. And He cannot love us more than, and He cannot love us less. He loves us as much as He loves His Son. And notice that as the source of love, He willingly, joyfully initiated this relationship. This is love. Here's the accent in the verse. God sent His one and only Son. There is no arm twisting here. It is not that Jesus had to die to convince God to love us. 
Sometimes people describe the death of Jesus in such a way that God was so angry at our sin that Jesus kind of threw Himself in between God and our sin to persuade God uh, to actually like us. Like God is an angry Father who has to be convinced to take us back. But God, arising out of His own free love, God sent His only Son. This shows us how deep His love is for us. That He would give, we sing, how deep the Father's love that He would give His only Son for us to make a wretch His treasure. Oh, brother, sister, do you want to know God's posture towards you today? Remember this. He willfully sent His Son for you. His own love initiated your salvation. He always takes the first and last step in the dance of redemption. Always. So the source of love is God Himself, which gives us great security. Then John shows us the magnitude of His love. Think for a moment, what would you give to show someone that you really, 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 really love them? We might buy them a costly gift. Maybe we'd give up something important to us, like a promotion or a friendship. We might give generous amounts of time. Maybe we'd be willing to lose sleep to show someone that we love them. In some cases, we might even you know, donate an organ to show someone love. But how has God gone about showing His love to us? In this is God's love revealed that He sent His one and only Son. He sent His one and only Son. How much must God love His people if He sent His only Son? This is His Son, the express image of His own nature. May I put it in this way with no irreverence? The spitting image, His own spitting image the exact representation of Himself. Fully equal, co-equal co in essence and glory. This is the Son of His love who, who loved Him from all eternity. The Son whom He loved. So John Stott writes simply, no greater gift of God is conceivable because no greater gift was possible. The sending of His Son shows us the magnitude of His love. Do you see the unsparing nature of His love? He spared not His own Son. Do you see, do you see the open-handed nature of His love? He sent His one and only Son. He sent. And since you need to know this and be reminded that since Jesus shows us God's love, you cannot get to God's love apart from Jesus. Just to be clear, it's written in the Scripture, there is no salvation given among men under heaven whereby we must be saved other than the name of Jesus. You come into this world of love through Jesus and only through Jesus. All others are false ways. Only Jesus takes you in to a world of love that you are made for and you want and you're looking for. The source, the magnitude, and now the 
purpose and result. God sent His Son. Here it is in verse 9. The end. So that we might live through Him. He sent His Son, verse 10, to be the atoning sacrifice, to be the propitiation for our sins. Now think for a moment. If you're not a Christian, and be reminded as a follower of Jesus that the Bible describes our human condition as being dead in sin. We are slaves to our desires, bondage to our pleasures. We feel alive, but we're the walking dead. And God sent His Son so that we might live through Him. So do you want to live? Really live? Well, this is life. This is eternal life. That they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the Son, whom you have sent. God sent His Son that you might live if you take Him. God sent His Son that you might have joy and your joy might be full. That you might live through Him. Will you come to Him? And verse 10 tells us that God sent this Son so that we could live through Him. And His Son would be the propitiation. The sacrifice of atonement for our sin. Sometimes people want to drop words like propitiation. But it's an unavoidable term. It's like a car mechanic and avoiding the word carburetor or lug nut. You just have to use the word. There's no way around it. This particularly if you're a Christian and the concept reminds us of the goodness of God and the human condition. So the Bible describes all of us as dead and disobedient to God. Here's how it shows up. We're lawless. All of us, we want to be God of our own life. Even if we say, I want Him to be my Savior, we want to retain the right to be King of my life. I want to be the playwright and the main actor of my life. I want to pick and choose the commands that apply to me or the kind of Jesus that He will be. I like the social justice Jesus, not the Jesus who talks about the only way is Him. That's a false Jesus. We're lawbreakers. And when it comes to others, this command to love, we see others as, as objects rather than subjects. Rather, which is why we click on inappropriate things and we break our promises. And that's why marriage becomes about us and our needs. Ending marriages becomes about finding ourselves. We describe breaking promises in terms of virtue. This is just the best thing for everyone involved. We grab the mic, right? With Frank Sinatra. And we sing, I did it my way. So how should God respond to that kind of law breaking? To our using people instead of serving them? How should God respond when we fail to give Him the glory due His name? Well, how would you respond to injustice? Do you get angry at real injustice? And isn't it, friends, isn't it true that it, anger is a praiseworthy response in the face of certain kinds of evil? 
So if we reserve the right for ourselves to be angry at injustice and to prosecute certain crimes to the full extent of the law, then why can't God be angry at sin? Moreover, what kind of being would God be if He remained indifferent about injustice? You don't want a God like that, do you? So because God is far better than any of us, because God is light and there's no darkness in Him at all, because God is inflexibly, inflexibly good, God is angry at the injustice in the life of people like you and me. And that means we are under the wrath of God. Everyone in this room deserves the wrath of God for sins. We're outlaws. And God is angry, the scripture says, with the wicked every day. Now please understand, God's anger is not capricious or arbitrary. His wrath is not like the person who flies off the handle in a drunken rage or the like. No, the wrath of God is His settled disposition, His good opposition to injustice, to sin. The soul that sins must die. The payment for sin is death because God is good. Every sin we commit sharpens the double-edged sword of His judgment that will come down on your neck. What a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Friends, do not be deceived. Whatever you sow, you reap. God will not be mocked. Be sure your sin will find you out. You can choose your sin, but you cannot choose your consequences. And if, you're, if you are in sin, if you're hiding it, you're under the wrath of God. And at any moment, His wrath could break on your soul like a storm about to fall. The wrath of God abides on all unrighteousness. But God. But God sent His one and only Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That means that God's own love provides for His just wrath. That Jesus Christ in His perfect life and His death is the sacrifice that satisfies, that absorbs all of the wrath of God against the sins of His people. We deserve wrath for our sin. But God showed us His love and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That He sent His Son and the Son willingly came. He joyfully came so that we could live through Him. He sent His own Son. What a sacrifice. He sent His own Son to take away the wrath that we deserve. And now all I know is love. And Christians now can say, God is not angry with me anymore. It is not only that our sin has been removed, but justice has been done. 
So we praise the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. For the Father sent His Son for our redemption. The Son accomplishes this redemption and the Spirit applies it to our hearts and testifies even now as you hear it as your own Son, as your own heart, that you are His own. And this is the love of God that He sent His one and only Son that we might live through Him, that He might be the propitiation for our sins. Now the last point. We've seen the command and what it reveals. We've seen God's love for us and what it accomplishes. Now finally, our love for one another and what it completes. Verses 11 and 12. John's entire point, well, a big point in telling us about the nature of God as love and showing us the extravagant love of God He takes us to the cross to make one practical point. Verse 11. Beloved, if God loved us in this way, we also ought to love one another. God has loved us like this. He loves you like this at this very moment so that we will love one another in the same way. But the way you obey this command is by looking and exploring and and delighting in His love for you at the cross. You behold His love to show His love. And showing His love is not an option if we're children, His children. If God loved us in this way, we ought to love one another. May I summarize God's love for us in this passage? Love like God loves in Christ. Here here are four sets of couplets, quickly. God's love is intentional and volitional. He chose to love us. He set His love on us. God's love is initiating and active. It's not that we loved Him, but that He first loved us and sent His Son. God's love is costly and sacrificial. He sent His one and only Son. God's love is forgiving and providing. He sent His Son to forgive us and provide us what we need. Someone to take our place. The wrath of God. This is how God loved us. So, to make a small but important point, The cross is not first or primarily an example to you of how to love. Not first and primarily. It's not first an example for you how to love. God did not send His Son to be your example, but foremost to be the sacrifice for your sins because you can keep His example. Yet now John says, when the love of God in Christ transforms your heart and you are meditating and living and delighting in the love of His Son, then here's what must happen. God's great love for us enables our love for one another. So think about that. God's love is unintentional and volitional. He chose. He set His love. So, beloved, if you're waiting, if you are waiting for someone to love you or until you feel a connection you've not thought long enough about how God loves you. 
Who will you choose to love in this body before you leave the gathering this morning? God's love is initiating and active. It's not that we loved Him, but He sent His Son. So I won't wait around for someone to call me or invite me. I'll show up early on Sunday and seek someone to talk to or invite to lunch or meet with later in the week. The initiation is on you, not the person next to you. God's love is initiating and active. God's love is costly and sacrificial. There's no way to love someone without being hurt or giving time. Jesus' love for us took Him to the cross. God's love is forgiving and providing. At some point, this congregation will fail you. At some point, you will fail this congregation. How should you respond to one another when it happens? Keep a running account of how often it happens. Make a mental note of how hard you're trying, but no one else seems to be. Compare your congregation to another one. What we must do is forgive, even as God sent His Son to provide for my sins to be forgiven. C.S. Lewis, who said Christians are those who forgive because God has forgiven the unforgivable in us. And if you're going to forgive, you have to stop looking at your wounds and start looking at the wounds of Christ. Look at His wounds and forgive. And what happens then when we love like God's love? Verse 12 is a remarkable reality that when we love one another like this, God's love is complete in us. It's perfected in us. That we become the channel, the conduit through which God's love flows to the person next to us. God's love is this mighty current, this endless reservoir. And when we open our hearts and our lives and our schedules to one another, the mighty love of God, the Trinitarian love of God, the propitiating love of God rushes towards and over our brothers and sisters. The circuit of God's love is made complete as we love one another. And what a marvel and mystery of grace that we, as guilty sinners, now cleansed, become the very channel through which God directs this love. So when you close your heart off to your brother or sister, you are closing off a portion of God's love that means to come through you to them. How will we know that God loves us? If someone in this body loves us. When you open your heart to them, the love of God rushes through you and into them and the love of the invisible God is made visible to your brother or sister and to the world that watches. So how do you know today that God loves you if you are His child? In this is love that He sent His one and only Son. And how will you know that God's love is transforming your heart? Because His love enables you to love one another. And praise God that what His law demands, love one another, His love has supplied. God sent His one and only Son so that we can live and love through Him.
Amen. Father, finish now your word in our hearts for our joy and our good and so that all people may know that we are disciples. For Jesus' sake, amen. Amen. Next, we're going to sing together for our concluding song, uh, the insert in your bulletin titled, The King of Love. Go ahead and find that. Not only is God the exemplar of our love, He's our shepherd. Meaning we very tangibly benefit from His loving care for us. He leads us to verdant pastures and flowing streams. And because of His great love, we will live within His house forever. Let's sing the King of Love together. Please stand as we sing.
the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Please be seated.
I just plug into my phone. I'll use yeah. mic too. And then so we can keep. Well, we just want to try to not. So keep it on mute. No, it's got to be unmuted. I'll oh keep no, it no, unmuted no. but low. Oh okay. Yes, so it's we on. Could, yeah. We could plug it in here. No. Test one, two, three. Test one, two, three. Okay, Are we recording? Did you do that or no? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> test one, two, three. Test one, two, three. Yeah, we got the out. This is recording. What's going on over here? Yeah. All right, that's it. That we're done. Recording. We're good. I doubt it. <laughs> it's still running. And you, so he did it from an out back here. Yeah, yep. that works. The I, same 